0: All right, you guys, you ready? Um, Last time we were talking about Holy Scripture, obviously we're gonna keep going with that, but what I really um, wanna punctuate is um, the relationship of Jesus Christ, Holy Son to Holy Scripture, and Holy Spirit to Holy Scripture, and Holy Scripture within the context of the life and mission of the church. So really what we're getting at is theological connections, but you you might say something like a relational ecosystem Right, um, which is dynamic rather than static by definition, a relational ecosystem um, in which God places scripture and in which we want to think about scripture so we uh, hear and use scripture well. So we talked about um, the, the relationship and the differentiation last time between the Son, who is the Word, right, the eternal Word, uh, and the Book, which is the Word categorically different right the book isn't the second person of the trinity jesus christ isn't a book a book isn't god possessed of things like eternality and you know self-existence and all those things but at the same time word of god's predicated on both of these things jesus god is known in jesus christ but jesus christ is known um, as we have spirit vivified relationship rightly understood with prophetic apostolic witness, Holy Scripture, right? The Jesus Christ of Holy Scripture, the only, the only Jesus there is, right? Um, we are acquainted with him and know him and are conformed to him and know the Father in him in that relationship with Holy Scripture, right? We talked about that and then we talked about the way in which the church is the custodian of Scripture but not the creator of Scripture, never the Lord of Scripture, right? So the church has authority, maybe we'll revisit that today as we talk, but the church has due and right. The church has an authoritative apostolic ministry to exercise. And the church is authoritative in that sense, but the, the church isn't, doesn't have inherent authority in herself. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, says Jesus, right? I exercise that through the church, with the word, in the spirit, right? The church speaks true words of God, right? In fact, the church exercises the keys of the kingdom. What's bound on earth is bound in heaven. What's, what's released on earth is released in heaven. But the church is never in and of herself um, the authority because she never tries to exalt herself over the Lord. She's always the, the creature of the Lord, called into existence by the Lord. Hi, Austin. Um, and has due authoritative ministry there, but as soon as she gets outside of that, right, boy, she's in trouble. That's a big issue in the Reformation, right? The church recognizes the word, rejoices in the word, and the church can always be corrected, um, her knowledge of God expanded, so on and so forth. She's sanctified and conformed to Jesus Christ so long as she's hearing the word. When she stops hearing the word. A problem when she lords herself over the word she can't be conformed right she has got an identity crisis at that point and you know self lordship and and insecurity they might seem like they're polar opposites but the way they're exercised they're really not right um when you're when you're given to self lordship you're really easily deflected insulted scared lose confidence does that make sense And just like we do, you know, just like individuals do, people do, um, the church gets whipsawed back and forth like that, too, as soon as she falls into that type of identity crisis. So that's what we talked about last time. We started to get into, you know, the authority of Scripture. Um, What does it mean, or how are we to think about um, Scripture being Word of God, right? Um, So where Scripture speaks, or where apostolic witness is exercised, we will say that for now, where that happens... We, we are actually hearing God. Scripture is the word of God, the voice of God, right? So let's, let's pick up there. Um, authority of Scripture, I don't have page numbers, but it's, it's point four. The, the heading is Authority of Scripture. And let's see, that third point down, we're talking about Calvin, right? How he says, we, we know the authority of Scripture, uh, or, or that Scripture is the word of God. We know that like we know that salt is sweet. Or salt is savory and sugar is sweet, right? By tasting, we don't we don't look at you know piles of salt and sugar on the table and try to try to discern from here. We actually enter in, right? We taste and see. We say that all the time in the liturgy, right? Come and taste and see that the Lord is good. So we have to enter in. This is this is um, experiential um, knowing in that sense. So right below that, let me pick up right there, according to Calvin, according to reformational theology, Scripture authenticates itself in that through Scripture, we're brought into faith in the Lord who speaks in Scripture. And as we come to know the Lord, we receive and rejoice in that apostolic witness. Does that make sense? I want to show, I want to show you some things in Scripture, but um, think of it like this. Um, As we receive apostolic witness, this this is the pattern of Scripture. You'll see it all over. That witness that we receive, we say yes and amen to and rejoice. Think of Jesus sending the apostles. Luke 10, 16. Go and speak, and as you speak, whoever hears you, hears me. They don't just hear about me in my absence, right, in my inaccessibility. The exercise of apostolic ministry is actually hearing Jesus Christ. If they hear me, says Jesus, in their hearing of you, they hear the one who sent me, the Father. To hear Jesus is to hear the Father. We hear Jesus in the exercise of apostolic ministry. And conversely, at the same time, and this is momentous stuff, right? If they don't hear you, if they refuse to hear you, if they reject you, it's not simply rejecting apostolic witness. They reject me and the one who sent me, right? So you never want to sit loose to Holy Scripture, right? It's, it's not as though, and a lot, a lot of you, you've, you guys have done theological training, and you know, you know how that can go, right? Sitting loose and being too cool for school, the Bible. How we, how we respond to the Bible is how we're responding to Jesus Christ. To, to, to be a, sit askance to apostolic witnesses, to do exactly that to Jesus Christ and the one who sent him. Right? So let's, I want to press in. I want to give you a couple texts to think about this with me, because what you're going to see in the pattern of apostolic witness is that this is the way the apostles think about their own ministry. And you translate that and it's a, it's a one-to-one translation. The exercise of apostolic ministry in the church is right here in scripture. Does that make sense? In other words, let me say it like this. We're not assuming in the 21st century, we're not taking, taking scripture as given, right? Paul didn't go, go to Galatians and say, open up to Ephesians, open up to Galatians. Paul was proclaiming, right? Now we have apostolic witness. We wanna think about apostolic witness according to the way apostolic ministry was exercised. Does that make sense? So look at, um, turn to 2 Corinthians 13. I wanna show you this. You'll see this all over and I'll I'll show you a couple of texts. This happens over and over, that what the apostles are thinking is to hear the preaching of Jesus Christ in apostolic ministry is to hear Jesus Christ and be encountered by Jesus Christ. Second Corinthians 13. Now you guys remember last week, First Corinthians, right off the bat, Paul says, you're sitting, you're sitting loose to, you know, some, some, some are of Peter, some are of Apollos, some are of Jesus. Um, I wanna get rid of this fractiousness and any kind of um, suspicion you might have of my own apostolic witness, Paul says, but I don't do that by trying to prove my credentials, I do it by proclaiming Jesus. and the powerful demonstration of the spirit, Paul's apostolic ministry gets authenticated. That's the pattern, that's what I want you to see to come to know Jesus in the powerful demonstration of the Spirit. Some of you were this and this and this, but not anymore. You've been washed, you've come to know Jesus, you are being conformed to the image of God and the apostolic witness is authenticated. You're recognizing that. So look here at the, at the end of 2 Corinthians, Paul says, this is the third time, I'm picking up in, in verse thirteen, chapter, uh, chapter 13, verse one. This is the third time I'm coming to you Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Let's skip down for the sake of time. Verse 3. Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me. You seek proof that Christ is speaking in me. In hearing Paul, do we hear Jesus. That's Paul's claim. It's a big one. He is not weak in dealing with you. He is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. That's an inclusion. That's, that's what Paul was doing in 1 Corinthians right off the bat. The powerful demonstration of the Spirit, um, the exercise of that ministry manifests the very presence of Jesus Christ. And as you come to know and are conformed in Jesus Christ, that's what's happening and your confidence in the in the and the exercises of ministry is affirmed. Does that make sense to you guys? You'll see that over and over. Look at this, because you're right there, just in passing, look at Galatians 3. It's probably on this, you're probably right there. Paul again, he says something really interesting here. Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your very eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Jesus Christ is manifest in your midst as crucified. How? <laughs> Through the proclamation of the word. The crucified Christ, cru- the only Christ I know, says Paul, is Christ and him crucified, right? In the exercise of the ministry, he's crucified in your midst and publicly before you. And, and you're, you're, you are now witnesses of these things. And the realities of these things are in you. Look at second, or First Thessalonians. I just want you to see a few of these, because this is pretty pretty characteristic of Scripture. 1 Thessalonians 2, rather, I'm sorry. Verse 13, again, Paul. And we also, picking up in verse 13, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, You accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, word of God, right? The exercise of the apostolic ministry is the word of God. To hear the word of God is to hear Jesus Christ, the capital W, uppercase W word of God. For you received it for what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. And then on he goes to talk about being conformed to Jesus Christ and being imitators of Jesus Christ and knowing that you have been acquainted with and and encountered Jesus Christ right there in the proclamation and exercise of apostolic witness. I'll show you one more. Go to Ephesians 4. It's when you see over and over that this is the pattern. And this one... You guys know the translation of Scripture is a theological endeavor, right? There's all kinds of theology going on here. If you look at really good commentators, they quibble about the translation here, and I think they're right. But Paul here is talking about, in, in chapter 4, he's talking about unity. And then in verse 17, he starts to talk about new life. What does is, what is new life in Jesus Christ look like? Now this I say, and I testify in the Lord, verse 17, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. For they're darkened in their understanding, check this out, alien from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. Bear that in mind, when we, we'll, we'll talk about the, the clarity of scripture, the perspicuity of scripture. Why is scripture clear and why is scripture unclear when it is? Paul's making a massive um, anthropological claim and uh, like a epistemological claim. He says, you lack understanding, you're dull, you have ignorance, and it's rooted in and due to the hardness of your heart. Not that you have a low IQ, not that you're modest in your intellectual capacities and abilities, because your heart's hard. Because your heart's hard, you're ignorant and your mind's beclouded. We'll go back to that. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality greedy to practice every kind of impurity, but that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard, now your text probably says about him. In Greek, assuming you've heard him. Assuming you've heard him and were taught in him. When did Jesus go to Ephesus? As you're reading the gospels, you know? And then then he was in You know, in and around Galilee, and then you went off to Ephesus, never, right? But Paul says, I'm assuming that you've heard Jesus and have been taught by him. Where have you heard Jesus and been taught by him? In the exercise of apostolic ministry. You're not just hearing words about Jesus in the absence of Jesus, you know, words that spur your intellect and memory, but in the inability of Jesus to touch you and be among you or vice versa, for you to be in him and him in you. Jesus Christ is doing ministry in Ephesus through the exercise of apostolic ministry. All of that has everything to do with scripture, right? That's the pattern of of apostolicity. That's a doctrine of scripture. Does that make sense? What do you guys want to say so far? Yes. So that's where we need to get into the ministry of the Spirit, which we're going to in a few minutes. So in the ministry of the Spirit, what does the Spirit do relative to Scripture? He makes Scripture living, active, bringing Jesus Christ to bear upon us. So that what we're not doing, if we weren't doing that, we'd do something like this. Okay, everybody get out your religious instruction manuals, also known as the Bible. I'm going to teach you some doctrine and some syntax and historical background. And we're going to recount when God used to do things when God was active among people, which he no longer is. That would be really bad, right? <laughs> really bad. And some of you have done, some of you have done higher education, and you know that's sometimes the way scripture is, is spoken about. If I have all the right historical, linguistic, theological tools, I can apply them to this text, like I'm doing an autopsy get behind this text and pull out propositional truths and then try to apply them to my life (laughs) really what's going on is jesus christ gives himself in and through scripture and the power of scripture we have living encounter with him and we we learn like paul says to imitate to participate in the very life of god right so scripture is living and active and dynamic all right let me show you let me show you one more text we'll come back to it. go to hebrews 4 you guys know this text it's phenomenal. But are you, are you seeing this pattern in scripture? Look at Hebrews four, verse 12. And here's the phrase again, for the word of God. Now the big question is, what word of God? What's the word of God here? For the word of God is living and active Sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow. Discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The word of God has arms and legs and it gets at you, right? And gets to places where where you can, we're, we're blinded to ourselves lots of times, right? There are places in our own life that we can't even get to. Other people can see them easier than we can sometimes, but even us, there's all kinds of reasons for that. We can't get to them the word of God gets to places in your own heart and in my own heart and life that I can't get to naturally and no creature picking up in verse 13 is hidden from his sight who's the word of God here (laughs) but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account the best way to translate word of God here is yes what's the word of God Apostolic ministry, yes. (laughs) By the way, Hebrews is full of the prophetic word of God, Old Testament, yes. (laughs) The word, the self-expression of God gathered up in Jesus Christ, the yes of God, yes. (laughs) All of us before him to whom we must give account, he is word of God who comes to us in a living and active way through the expression of apostolic ministry. Does that make sense? Scripture is authoritative and apostol- apostolic witness is authoritative because Jesus Christ gives himself in and through apostolic witness. And our knowledge of word of God goes from Christ to scripture, not vice versa. And all I mean by that is, we don't try to establish the truthfulness of the Bible so that it's okay for us to believe in Jesus. The apostles never do that. Never do anything like that. Moderns do and it's one of the reasons we're weak. We ought to never do that. Precisely, I'm third, third point down here. Precisely because God himself speaks in scripture, we don't and ought not try to deduce or infer or conclude God from the printed page. That's not the way we know God. The reformers would say, any God who you can, you can simply infer or deduce is an idol by definition because a God who you, you have to infer or deduce is a God who you don't perceive as one who lives and speaks and acts and is presently effectual. That's not, you guys know Blaise Pascal, right? What does he say? Um, not the God of the philosophers. He's a philosopher. It's not that he hates philosophy. It's just not that God. The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, truth fire holy why does he say that that's the god who's characterized by living speaking acting that's a god you don't infer or deduce you're encountered by right so we're not trying to again go right back to that's what a lot of that's what a lot of modern ways of looking at scripture is trying to infer god from scripture as if god's not present then what we what we're saying is We've got to use this somehow as a launching pad to get to the infinite God, given that he doesn't give himself, given that this isn't, this isn't, we don't have a sacramental relationship with Scripture, right? And God doesn't give himself in and through Scripture, right? We've got to try to infer God from Scripture. Another way of saying that is there's no sacramental reality going on in our handling of Scripture. That would be a real bad news, but, it, but it, it affects the way we approach Scripture fundamentally. To infer deduce God from scripture is to deny, effectually, operatively, that God speaks in scripture. And thus to affirm, at least tacitly, that scripture is a message about God, abstracted from God himself. And when it's that, then we have a really hard time thinking about the Word of God relative to, capital W, Word <coughs> of God. That's my point. And then we, we start to have all kinds of trouble with the authority of scripture then we start to try to import conditions by which we can say, affirm on our own wiles that scripture is the word of God. And our confidence goes down and we're right back to lording over scripture and acting as though we're creature, creators of scripture and keepers of scripture, authenticators of scripture, rather than vice versa. That's my big point there. I wanna go on and talk about um, this in relation to the spirit of God, but. Ask away or talk away. What are you thinking, Rachel? Yes. yes. Hearing, hearing the Lord, right? By the way, whose word is God? Even in the really hard spots. You might, even, you might even think like this. Who is it that says, in the wilderness, pretty hard place, right? If you are the Son of God. Um, the response of our Lord there is, we don't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes forth from the mouth of God. Who does that? Jesus Christ. What is one of the categories of authentic personhood and humanness? You live by every word that comes forth. We do, we do that with Jesus, right? It's good for him. It's good for us. It's good news. It's good news at Gethsemane. It's good news in the wilderness. It's good news in our own wilderness. In Gethsemane, it's good news. Let's talk a little bit about inspiration of Scripture. And here what I want to do is now start to bring in a real, a real robust pneumatology. Holy Son, Holy Scripture, Holy Spirit. You cannot have a good doctrine of Scripture and a good understanding and praxis of Scripture without a big, rich doctrine of the Spirit, right? So the relationship here, get at it like this and start to flesh it out. I have it emboldened here right on the top of that page. Scripture is the substance of the Spirit. Now, when I say the substance, don't like ontologize that. I'm not saying Scripture is the fourth person of the Trinity. I don't mean that, but just think like the stuff, the content. Mm-hmm. Scripture is the stuff of the Spirit. And at one and the same time, the Spirit is the power of Scripture, the efficacy, the action, the dynamism. The reason we can say, the Word of God is living and active, right? Not, not this. The Word of God, if we're talking about Scripture, the Word of God is like a beautiful moth or a butterfly now dead, pinned on a corkboard in a museum that we say, man, that's cool. It's dead. Not active, not living. The Word of God is active and living, right? Um, hearing the Word of God is, is, is living, life-giving, life-transforming encounter with Jesus Christ and the power of the Spirit. Why? Because the Spirit's the power of Scripture. The power of Scripture. So I want to I play those two out. There's a, there's, a, there's a beautiful relationship there. What we're getting at is what the reformers would call, Reformation theology would call a doctrine of word and spirit. The, the proper context and relational context for, vacuum cleaner? For Bible, the domain of understanding Bible is Holy Church and Holy Spirit, right? The proper domain for discerning the movement of the Spirit is the Bible right? They go together. You never want to pull them apart, but you never want to conflate them either. When you conflate them, um, what happens is one, one of two things. Again, we're talking about a book, right? The Spirit's the third person of the Trinity, God Almighty. There's a categorical distinction between God, the Spirit, and the book, But if you conflate them, you'll be you be tempted, at least in, in your practice, to say, "Why would I need the Spirit if I have the Bible?" And some, some forms of modern evangelicalism are particularly susceptible to this. They don't come out and say that, but um, the, the Holy Trinity is um, the Father, the Son, and Scripture. Scripture's job was to give us this book. Now that I have the book, why would I need script? Why would I need the Spirit? Do you lose the book there too, right? You, don't want to, you want to see distinction without division, without separation, without conflation. Now, now, go with me here. What would happen, or what tends to happen, if in our own thinking, we pull apart Scripture and Spirit? How, do, how would we think about the Spirit devoid of Scripture? Couldn't the Spirit become, well, for one thing, impersonal force? It, the Spirit is that it. Um by the way, that has a funny way of conforming to any agenda I want. If what's going on is the Spirit, is this the content of Scripture, then you know, how the, you know how the Spirit speaks? Just like Scripture. He's the divine author of Scripture. and He doesn't have personality dissociative disorder, right? He's not forked tongue how Scripture speaks, it's the lingua franca of the Spirit. That's the language of the Spirit. So that we're never doing something like, isn't that funny now how, how, how the Spirit's ministry now moves beyond and contradicts Scripture? Right, that was going, that was going on in the Reformation in all kinds of different ways, um, in, in some of the, the fringe movements of the Reformation. And it goes on today. If you guys go downtown, you'll see flags. I don't want to pick here but I want you to see it, rainbows. God still speaks. The assumption is over and against Holy Scripture. He speaks beyond Holy Scripture and He speaks in ways that contradict Scripture and contradict the Lord, right? Reformation theology would say word and spirit, right? When when you rip apart word from spirit, you actually lose the personality of the spirit. The spirit becomes relegated to some kind of impersonal force. In its worst, it looks something like this. This is 20th century Nazi Germany, right? Um, The movement of the zeitgeist, the spirit of the age, is the movement of the spirit. The spirit of the age is the spirit of God. And what is he bringing about? The Third Reich. Kingdom come, right? And then what happens is that's the sacrament of obeying the spirit. Hitler, he bears witness to someone quite other than the one to whom the Spirit always bears witness, right? Think of Upper Room Discourse, John 14, John, John 14 through 16, the Spirit takes the things of me, makes them known to you, the Spirit, he will come, he bears witness to me, does that make sense? He doesn't bear witness to the spirit of the age, this age or any other age, because we, we do that too. Right? We do that, too. We want to be really careful about that. Or in a more innocuous level, but not unharmful, some of the monkey business, right? The Spirit said, you should date me. <laughs> you know what I mean? I had a student, lovely guy, a few years ago. His dad was a pastor. The Spirit told him to leave his wife and four kids and run off with a woman in the church. Right? You probably know him. <sighs> so this is, that's abusive, right? son you, you must you don't don't quench and grieve the spirit this is this is the spirit's bidding oh no it isn't how would i know that this is the language of the spirit right this is the language of the spirit you want to keep those real close distinction right but unity with distinction when we think about scripture apart from the spirit again it becomes religious textbook right book of book of christian ethics book of christian history if you've done theological training, you know how sometimes this goes, the answer book for my, my exams at school. And so what happens there is, man, your heart gets real hard and you start to get resentful and bored of even Holy Scripture, right? It's not life-giving encounter with Jesus Christ, it's something else. It's denatured in that sense, In the way we treat Scripture. So I want you to hold those together, right? That's reformational theology and it's glorious. It's just glorious. The Spirit bears witness to Jesus Christ and speaks in and through Holy Scripture. He is always exactly like himself, immutable. Um, He's not evolving, (laughs) he's not being conformed to culture, right? He actually has, if if we actually want to do ministry with cultural sensitivity, we won't lose that. To lose that is just to get assumed by culture. Does that make sense? then you don't have a word of God for your culture, you're irrelevant in that sense. Let's unpack it a little bit. Stop me at any time, by the way. Yeah. Um, I'm just thinking about um, that passage where Jesus says to the disciples, that he'll give you the Holy Spirit and He'll lead you into all truth. Yes. And I've I've heard people take that different way, <clears throat> like maybe more progressive progressively than what you talked about, which takes it like he's gonna lead us beyond scripture. Or mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then maybe a more Roman Catholic perspective, which kind of talks about that as the ongoing tradition yeah. of the church. Yeah. Um, I wanted. Could you just kind of unpack the connections between? Yeah. The spirit leading into the fullness. Yeah, the absolutely. The, you know, in fact, yes. Tradition. How about I do that very thing in the next in just like five minutes? Keep that thought. I'm going to do it. Yeah. Yes. So now we're talking about the the progress of redemptive history, right? So you'll see, you'll see, um, here, I'll show you one. Matthew 22. It's a cool text. But you'll see this all over scripture. But this 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 will say something here. Matthew 22. Verse 41. Oh, this is a great text. Jesus is talking about Psalm 110, and actually what he's doing to the Pharisees is saying, this is, this is, this is the way you actually exegete the Old Testament, <laughs> right? This is the Christologic of the Old Testament. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. Who do you think, or what do you think about the, about the Christ? Whose son is he anyway? They said to him, he's the son of David. And he said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him the Lord, right? So what do we wanna say about Old Testament writers and, and the, the bringing together of the Old Testament? Um, I have this text uh, on the page you're at, 2 Peter 1.20. Here, we're talking about the Old Testament. Um, the, the writers of scripture, the authors of scripture of old were carried along by the Spirit. Think of like wind in the sails of a ship, right? They were borne along in that way. So the, the spirit is always active. He's you know come creator spirit. He's active in the creation of the world. He's active in the creation of Holy Scripture, prophetic apostolic witness. And he's always, do, he's always doing that, that's always his ministry. So in the Upper Room Discourse, what Jesus does is he says, you know the spirit, he's been with you, but he will be in you, right? So it's not as though the spirit was dormant until Pentecost, the spirit's active, active in creation. But Jesus says, you know, it's better for me that I go away because if I go away, he says this really interesting thing there, I won't leave you orphans. So he never claimed to be our father, right? And he in fact isn't our, Jesus isn't our father. Why would he say that? I won't leave you orphans because to be without the son is to be without the father. John makes that point in 1 John. To be without the son is to be without the father. I won't leave you so that you're Christless and therefore fatherless, I will come to you. When the Spirit comes, right, I will be in you. I have been with you. I will be in you. So the progress of redemptive history is with the indwelling ministry of the Spirit. That is a new covenant reality. The indwelling ministry of the Spirit is actually Jesus Christ forging his very life in us. So fun, isn't it? So what are the fruits of the Spirit? Peace, joy, love, so on and so forth. What is that? The very reality of Jesus Christ being formed in us. Right. And he says something wonderful there, Lydia. And in that day you will know, right? That wonderful yada in the Old Testament, right? Like Adam knew Eve, experiential reality. In that day you will know with the Spirit's indwelling ministry that I am in my Father and I am in him. Right? My Father is in me, I am in him, you are in me, I am in you perichoretic, interpenetrating realities. He says, you'll know that. How will we know that? Because as the Spirit bears witness to Jesus Christ, right, who's now opening up the very bosom of the Father, we're sharing in Christ's knowledge of the Father and the power of the Spirit. We're tasting and seeing, right back to this kind of knowledge. In that day, you'll know Right that this is happening. So that's, that's the, the, the progressive ministry of the Spirit, but the Spirit's always been active. Mm-hmm. That's why it's so important to be Trinitarian, so we don't think something like, the Father created, said to the Son and the Spirit, you know, go off into the celestial driveway and play basketball, shoot hoops or something, and Jesus at Bethlehem, I'm gonna tap you, right? And at Pentecost, Spirit, you're up. So we've got something like a relay race, a triune relay race, right? The Father, the Father is the, the only God we know in the Old Testament. Then he sends the Son. When the Son ascends, he says, whew, There's the baton, go for it. And so the Spirit's ministry, if that's the way we're thinking, the Spirit's ministry is like a a consolation prize in the absence of Jesus, Mm -hmm. rather than the really the bringing to bear of Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? Or something like this. Well, until the fullness of time, we have the ministry of the Spirit, given that we have no access to Jesus. We think like that all the time, right? Even when you think about you know, what's going on in the life of the church, are we, coming to the, are, we coming, are we gathering here as the body of Jesus Christ to say, we're here to live into our baptism. We're here to hear the present Jesus Christ and commune um, with, with the body of Jesus Christ in the power and fellowship of the spirit so that our message to the world is among other things. Where can you have a life-giving encounter with Jesus Christ? Right here. And if we can't do that, then we're then we're saying something like come and participate with us in this big vacuous hole in the co- in the in the cosmos where God is absent but we think about him we remember him and we do all of those kinds of things we're like a great historical society for Jesus <laughs> rather than this is the place where Jesus says I will, I will be with you I'll give myself to you you must abide in me right that too is Upper Room Discourse you must abide in me apart from me you can do nothing Right, or, or great, great commissioning discourse. All authority in heaven and earth is given to me now. Go into the world, and I will be with you. Right, now think about go back to the upper room discourse for a minute. I'm getting excited. I got to. All this, all this bears to be here, it bears on the issue we're talking about. When Jesus says to the apostles there, I'm, I'm going away. What? They're confused. They're afraid. Right. Rightfully so. What if we did the ministry and were the church with the kind of tacit assumption that Jesus Christ is gone now? What would we be? Afraid, timid, <laughs> confused. He says, don't do any of that. I will come to you in the power of the Spirit. And this Spirit, he has things to teach you. He'll always teach of me, right? That's that's ongoing apostolic witness. We'll get to that in just a minute. That has everything to do with the Bible and how the Bible comes to be. So just um, let me let me hit this a little bit harder in the sense that scripture is the substance of the spirit. Think common language, lingua franca. How does the spirit speak? He speaks like scripture speaks, right? He's the divine agent of scripture who brings scripture to be. Scripture is the creation, the product of the spirit. It's, you know, it's really fun to do here. Think about the Bible, the inscripturated word, as a parallel that'll keep helping inform you about the incarnate word. Was Jesus Christ conceived by the power of the Spirit? Isn't the Bible conceived by the power of the Spirit too? Doesn't, isn't the miracle of, of Christmas that in the power of the Spirit, the second person of God enters into a human womb and in the power of the Spirit, the Spirit of Holiness takes our humanity up into the life of God and in Jesus Christ. And then later us in Jesus Christ redeems the world. He doesn't negate humanity, but he actually assumes humanity, sanctifies humanity for mission. What's going on with the superintendence of scripture? Not the exact same thing, but something very like that, right? God takes human authors, brings them up into the life and mission of God and the power of the Spirit, and what happens is Word of God. It's really cool, <laughs> but there's, there's parallels there all over the place. What is scripture? Holy, divine, fully, fully human, fully divine. Who is Jesus Christ? Fully human, fully divine. Word of God and Word of God Just helping us, mutually exegeting one another all the time. Now think about this for a minute, about what time we got. Never enough. Um, The way in which the Spirit brings about Holy Scripture, right? You see this uh, in in really different ways. Um, For instance, I have have the text of Jeremiah here, Um, but maybe just think broadly about the apostle or the, the prophets and the word of the Lord came to the prophet Jeremiah the word of the Lord came to Isaiah, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel. Odd and strange, right? Then you look at, say, Luke's gospel, the first four v- verses of Luke's gospel. Luke says, Theophilus, blessed Theophilus, for a long time, I've wanted to bring together an orderly account of, of the, the words and the deeds um, that I have seen or that, that have happened here. And so what I've done is I've talked to a lot of people. I've kept an orderly, careful account. So that I so that I can help you confirm what you know. That sounds like apostolic journalism. It doesn't sound like Ezekiel, right? It sounds like apostolic journalism. The spirit superintends in different ways, not necessarily just one way, but one thing we want to be careful of that we don't want to say is the way the spirit superintends the writers of scripture as he puts them in a trance, right? So that, you know. Calls in his room at night, has a convulsion, <laughs> wakes up hours later, and Galatians, you know, this, the parchment of Galatians is laying here, and, you know, he's got ink all over his hands. What, what, happened, what was this? We, we don't want to talk like that. And the reason why is because that is an overriding and undermining of humanity. God doesn't override and undermine humanity to bring about Scripture, He superintends humanity. Does that make sense? Jesus Christ wasn't conceived by the power of the Spirit in in, in the sense that the Spirit negated or eviscerated humanity, but sanctifies humanity and actually authenticates humanity, brings humanity on mission there. We want to say very much the same thing uh, with Scripture. So you don't want to have a kind of like, you know, God is God and humanity is humanity and never the twain will meet. Whenever God comes close, he has to get rid of humanity and, you know, eviscerate or push to the side. That's actually not the case at all. God brings humanity right up into his life and mission. You guys want to say anything there? That is awesome. Yeah. It's, fun, it's fun to think about, isn't it? Yeah, it, it is. And it's fun to think about the Holy Spirit. Like that God has always been so much more okay with us than we have with ourselves. <laughs> God, so he loves it right mm-hmm. so you know sometimes we think take holiness for instance right God's holy well what does that mean it means that God can never come near you especially if you're sinful right mm-hmm. God can never come near you, yeah. That's what you did. And, well <laughs> think about this And the Lord in the Old Testament dwelt in the midst of Israel, right? You ever study the Israelites? And now God is in our flesh in Jesus Christ, right? And now he comes in our flesh touching lepers, right? And the Pharisees say, he can't be from God. God would never touch a leper. God touches and transforms. So holiness doesn't debar God from relationship. He's not in a prison of his holiness. It, It tells us, what it looks like as god condescends to initiate and maintain and perfect a relationship he does it in a holy way
1: Mm
0: -hmm. right think about that relative to the church what if we what if we thought holiness debarred relationship the church would be a ghetto and our mission would be like this ew gross yuck right That, that would be our message for the world at the same time what if we didn't know that God doesn't contradict or um, cede over his holiness, but it informs the way he relates. If we didn't know that, as a church would say, go out into the world and conform to the world. Just tell everyone, come as you are, stay as you are, right? The church is holy. The church church touches and transforms. The church has to repent and believe the gospel. This is magnificent news because that's the life and mission of God that we're participating in. The Spirit is the power of Scripture. The Spirit is the power of Scripture. The Spirit is the one who makes the teaching of Scripture and the teaching of God's messengers in Scripture living, active, powerful, able to penetrate hearts, illumine hearts, change hearts. Without the Spirit, we would tend to think about Our engagement with scripture would be primarily just a cognitive issue and it is that but it would just be that an intellectual issue oh right if i if i understand this passage and my exegesis is correct then i'll be informed and information is salvation it's way more right we're being transformed right we're being conformed we are being informed it's just not nearly enough it's the scripture who does that so if you turn over that next page the spirit speaks in and through the words of scripture. His ministry to post-apostolic Christians, us, isn't to render scripture superfluous. If, if, you have the, if you have the spirit, who needs scripture? Not that, but to render scripture clear, powerful, effectual in the life of ministry in, in our lives. That's what he does. Now think about this. We're talking about the spirit here, right? We're not leaving off Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ does all his ministry, anointed with and baptized in the Spirit, (laughs) right? We're not hearing the Spirit apart from Jesus Christ, we're hearing Jesus Christ in the power and presence of the Spirit with Holy Scripture. Remember that that relational ecosystem, the dynamic there. What the spirit does is he acts like a floodlight, right? He's self-effacing in the sense that he takes the thing. The, spirit, the spirit's ministry, is he doesn't do this, which is hard for moderns because we live in an age of like self-declaration, right? The spirit, and by the way, this is the way the triune God is. The father says, hear the son, rejoice in the, I've given all things to the son. In the exaltation of the son, I'm glorified. The son says, I take all things and render them to my father. The spirit says, the spirit takes his ministry to make Jesus Christ known. He doesn't draw attention to himself, but draws attention to Jesus Christ. That's how God loves the other in the triune life, right? And exalts the other and seeks the other. The Spirit teaches us to receive and believe and adore and obey Jesus Christ in apostolic witness. Super fun. Let's go to the Upper Room Discourse for a minute. I want you to see this. could live in this upper room discourse for months it's amazing it's amazing so this is where right (laughs) philip says you know now that you've been with us for three years jesus just show us the father and that'll be enough for us as your last (laughs) as your as your big finale (coughs) if you've seen me you've seen the father i want to make sure you guys get if you've if you've seen Jesus Christ and adore Jesus Christ, you've actually that's what it means to see the Spirit. That's what it means to see the Spirit. He'll take the things that are our Lord's and give them to us. So I've got John fourteen 26. Let's just look at these. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance everything that I've told you everything that I've said to you. Who is, whose words does the Spirit want us to hear? Jesus, right? What does the church do in the Great Commission? Go into all the world and proclaim to the world everything that I've taught you. The power of the Spirit. Verse 26 in chapter 15. And when the Spirit comes, whom I will send to you, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me and you also will bear witness about me. You will be, you will be caught up in, in, in the mission and the life and the power of the Spirit. And you will do just this as well. And then over in verse 16. Oh, let's start. Let's do verse 12. Jesus is teaching on the Spirit. I, have, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he's talking about Pentecostal realities, right? When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will, you guys hear this? He will not speak on his own authority. Jesus says that all the time, doesn't he? I don't come in my own authority. I come in the name of my Father. If Jesus didn't speak on his own authority, we shouldn't either, right? (laughs) The spirit comes in the name of Jesus, to do Jesus's bidding, to bear witness to Jesus, right? the Lord, to whom all authority in heaven and earth is now given. But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And then, of course, the question that Jesus preempts here, what's yours? Right? All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, he will take what is mine, all that is the Father's, declare it to you. If they hear you, they'll hear me. If they hear me, they hear the one who sent me. That's the way that goes. That has everything to do with the way we handle the scripture and the life of the church. So what we don't have, we don't have here in the Upper Room Discourse is there is no Galatians, there is no First Thessalonians, there is no book of Hebrews, there is no New Testament. That is what is to come, right? The inscripturation of apostolic preaching. We have that. Now we don't we don't create um, in an ongoing way. That's not what it means for the church to be apostolic. That office is particular here. What it means for the church to be apostolic is to proclaim apostolic apostolic teaching and in the power and ministry of the Spirit to Continue on that apostolic preaching and teaching, but we're not creating anything. And that's hard for us because we're, we're constantly wanting to conform ourselves, aren't we, to our culture? Culture is a powerful thing, <laughs> real powerful thing, and you don't want to you don't want to do that. By the way, that's when the church loses relevance. That is just that is just the worst idea. Anytime time the church does that, to be apostolic. to to be real sensitive to your culture, to try to know it and learn it, um, and then proclaim the gospel in it, right? That's to be truly relevant. That's to lighten the load and all the burdens we're burdened with in our culture. The Spirit testifies to our hearts that Scripture is truly, assuredly Word of God. That's part of the Spirit's ministry, the inner testimony of Scripture. Spirit bearing witness to our spirit. You guys have experienced that, I'll bet. You've experienced that. We can't can't do that. The world can't do that for you. Your pastor can't do that for you. You can't do that for you. You can't do that for you. Spirit does it. It's the Spirit's ministry. Now, you can fight against that ministry, right? You can contend with the Spirit. You can grieve and quench the Spirit. But you can't do that. The authority and trustworthiness of Scripture isn't, therefore, established by way of arguments, slick arguments. The Spirit persuades us of Scripture's authority and trustworthiness by persuading us of the authority and trustworthiness of Jesus Christ. That's how how the Spirit persuades us that the Bible is the word of God. And we say yes and amen. I'm just going to skip down for lack of time Um, on point D here. The Spirit doesn't convince us by anything esoteric or mystical. And what I mean here by mystical is I just mean like some, taking us out of ourselves. The Spirit actually gives us to ourselves, sets us in our right mind. This is how the Spirit convinces us, by the searching, transforming power whereby Scripture exhibits that Scripture is the Word of God. That's how, that's how, that's how Scripture acts in the life of the church and the ministry of the Spirit. Okay, I gotta make a point here. I'm gonna gonna try to make it quickly, but don't let that, don't let that talk to me. I want you to see something here about the self-authenticating nature of scripture. God, I really want you to to think about that. Right at the bottom of this page, I'm gonna give you a quote from Calvin. This is is really um, representative of reformational theology. It's brilliant. It might sound, well, let's see what it sounds like to you. He says, there are, you see where I am right here? There are other reasons, neither few or weak. Now I'm taking up right in the middle. This is what he's doing. He's, he's just, he just is, has engaged in about 30 pages where he's saying, Scripture's beautiful. Scripture's, you know, it, it's old, right? Scripture is for 40 authors, one incredibly unified message, right? We've got fulfilled prophecies. We've got the, the miracle, the, 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 the keeping of Scripture through the ages. He's saying all those are amazing, right? Those are amazing things. Don't ever make light of them. But then he says this, there are other reasons, neither few nor weak, by which the dignity and majesty of Scripture are not only affirmed in godly hearts, but brilliantly vindicated against the wiles of, of Scripture's disparagers. Now Here's the caveat, yet of themselves, In and of themselves, these things are not strong enough to provide firm faith. Until our heavenly Father, revealing the majesty there, lifts reverence from scripture beyond the realm of controversy, therefore scripture will ultimately suffice for a saving knowledge of God when its certainty is founded upon the inward persuasion of the Holy Spirit. Indeed, these human testimonies, which exist to confirm Scripture, won't be in vain. He's not saying they're useless, doesn't mean that at all. As secondary aids to our own feebleness. And when they are as secondary aids, they follow that chief and highest testimony, the testimony of the Spirit. But those who wish to prove to unbelievers that Scripture is the Word of God by way of those slick arguments are acting foolishly. That word is really interesting, right? It's not just, it's not a put down. What does the fool say in his heart? Psalm 14, that there is no God. How do you act foolishly here? You act as though God doesn't live and speak in scripture and you try to affirm scripture on your own authority come says you're acting foolishly there. Only by faith can this be known. So this is his point. Have you guys ever had those really annoying conversations till three in the morning with friends or family members that you know you, you end up being really frustrated and saying things you wish you didn't, and the conversation was four hours longer than it should have, and it seems very fruitless? Maybe you planted some seeds, but you know what I mean? Because there's always these, right? Here, talking about the word, but, 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 but. You know how that goes, right? Calvin's point is, what ends the but there? What ends the but? The testimony of the Spirit. Right now, these secondary things are awesome. They're really, really good, but they're not the stuff that grounds a trustworthiness of scripture. So think about this in terms of discipleship, right? A good rule of thumb is, honest answers for honest questions. You discern whether, you discern what kind of question you're hearing, because they're not all that. The first question in scripture is, did God really say, right? That is, not, did God really say, because I so want clarity on this? No way. Or the questions that we tend to ask, that when, there's, when they are started with something like, what does it even mean, that ellipsis? You know, it's usually coming there. Something that's going to bring obscurity to the issue, right? Did God really say, or Herod, where's the Christ child so I can come and worship him? Sure, <laughs> right? But honest questions, honest answers. So think, for, think you know, you're discipling somebody how do we know that galatians is is an authentic pauline text that's an honest question right when it is you don't say you're talking foolishly just believe that's not calvin's point at all let's think about this right this is a textual issue this is a historical issue we, we can talk about it in that way and we can we can we can, we can say You have every reason to be really, really confident that you're dealing with an authentic Pauline text. Galatians is the word of Paul. Calvin's point is this. How do you get from word of Paul to word of God? Not that way. You can't get there that way. And so the issue is you got to know what tools you have and which ones work well, right? Like jackhammers are really good tools. But if you need dental floss and you try to use a jackhammer, that's going to be bad, right? Or vice versa honest questions. It's true, right? That's what you, you got to, you know what tool you have and how to use it. So, so those types of questions, right? How, how do we know? Like, how do, how do we get the Bible? That's a, that's a great historical question. That's a, that's a kind of evidentialist question. It's data driven. It's historical. It's that type of thing. It's textual, but you can never get from word of Paul to word of God that way. That's the province of the spirit. And so when you try to get from word of Paul to word of God that way, Not only are you unsuccessful, you're being foolish, Calvin says. I think he's right. I think he's brilliantly right. Spurgeon says this, you guys know Spurgeon. It's really fun to illustrate this point. So he ministered in London, right? Height of the enlightenment. People come from miles around. Spurgeon's preaching to thousands and thousands all the time and the church in England's pretty anemic at that point. Some people are asking, what's the secret sauce, right? How are people doing this? And, and his point is, like, like in lots of big revivals in the churches, there is no secret sauce. We're just doing, we're being the church. But he uses this illustration, tiger. He's talking about the Bible. He says, now think about it. If we were down at the Lincoln Park Zoo, well, not Cosley. Cosley doesn't have tigers. I don't know if Lincoln, Park, Lincoln Zoo has tigers either, but let's say it does, and we're all down there. How do we know that tigers are ferocious man-eating beasts, right? Spurgeon's point is this. Well, we could, we could all spend a day at the cage and we could walk around and we could say, well, look at the musculature of tigers. Look at the anatomy. I mean, their eyes aren't here. They're not doves. They're here. <laughs> They're predators, right? Look at their claws. Look at this. And we could get reams of data, right? And we could, and at the end of the day, we'd say, we could say this. Hmm. wow. I bet you that tiger seems to be real ferocious. Let's go to five guys now, right? Spurgeon's point is that's sometimes how people handle the Bible. And he says, you know, there's a better way than doing that. He says, you can go over to the tiger's cage, you can flip the latch, the tiger will come out of the cage and the tiger will convince you in such a memorable way, beyond all doubt, what the tiger is, (laughs) right? You know what his point is? Preach the word. Pre- quit arguing about the word and preach the word. Use the word in the life of the church, right? His point is to, to a lot of his ministerial colleagues is quit doing this. Is the Bible really the word of God for decades on end? He says that's a way to actually enfeeble the church and destroy ministry and so on and so forth. Preach the word. Now it comes with that of course, as like Paul says, right? In earthen vessels, there's a feebleness there, right? There's a confidence that you have to learn that actually Bishop was talking about it the other day that, that takes away self-confidence, right? You don't, you don't carry out ministry on your own wiles. And you learn to be confident in the right places. So that's a hard thing to do. It's a, there's, a, there's a cruciformity to that. And I really want to talk about persp- perspicuity, but we don't have a lot of time. Um, what are you guys thinking? Talk to me. I love when you talk to me, by the way. Is this resonating? Yeah. This is really, the, this is one of the great glories of the Reformation. This is a real, the um, profound doctrine of Scripture because they want to reform the church. Remember what I said last time? The church is one holy Catholic apostolic. The church can be one when she hears the word. When the church won't hear the word, she's fractured all over the place, right? The church can be holy, right? Um, not grounded in the contours of her own culture, right? Being, you know, overtaken by the spirit of the age. The church can be holy in the world as she hears the word. The church can be Catholic as she hears the word. But that apostolicity has to govern all those things. When the church won't be apostolic, She can't be, she can't manifest. She is, she is one holy and Catholic. She can't manifest it. She looks fractured and unholy a plaything of the world and so on and so forth. Reformation's so good there. To be one holy Catholic apostolic, we gotta have a good doctrine of scripture. Can I talk about the clarity? Perspicuity, that's the the fancy Latin word. Um, The clarity of scripture. You guys know that what came with the Reformation was this this um, translation of scriptures into the vernacular. right? Erasmus did it. William Tyndale did it for the English. Uh, Martin Luther did it for the Germans. And you know, Erasmus says famously, um, "My vision is is that every every plowboy and every milkmaid will have in their hand holy scripture, so the church can be a people of the word, right? A people of the book in that sense, and even things like literacy rates right? just." go on in the Reformation because you learn to read so you can read the Bible, <laughs> right? Um, so that is a big deal and grounding this is, scripture is the word of God for the people of God. <coughs> scripture is not, for, is not elitist. Um, um, even something like rightly understood clergy don't have a, um, a monopoly on Holy Scripture. Scripture isn't, you know, we don't want to say something like this, because this is what was happening in late medievalism. If you give the Bible to those rabble, (laughs) right, they will make mincemeat of it, and they could never understand it. This idea is, no, Scripture is actually given for people to understand, right, given for people to understand. Not for everyone to run into their homes and start home churches and... ground authority of Scripture and their own interpretation of Scripture. It's an ecclesial book, but it's for the people of God. So that's a really big deal. Go over on the next page. Let's talk about this a little bit. What does that mean? I give you a couple things. I give you Old Testament here. For lack of time, you guys can look at this, but you know these texts. You can go back. Deuteronomy 6 says, let the Word of God... Be the, be the stuff of your conversation and talk about, talk about the word as you walk along the way and as you rise up and as you lie down, right? So the word of God is, is the, the normal parlance of life, right? We're people of the word. Now that's not to scribes and Pharisees, it's an Old Testament text, that's for the people of God, right? Your, your rank and file Israelite, butcher, baker, candlestick maker type stuff, The Psalms I give you here is the word is pure. The word makes wise, the simple, right? For those who are, for those who are simple, not for those who have, you know, multiple graduate degrees is the word of God that the word of God makes wise, the simple, it's light unto our path. The idea is scripture is for your rank and file person. The way Jesus talks in his ministry to folks, this is just that? Jesus is always talking about the things of God and the things of Holy Scripture to common folk. The idea is, Scripture's perspicuous, right? It's, uh, it's clear, able to be understood. Now, Jesus does say numerous times, man, I can't believe how dull you are. <laughs> he does say that. Who does he say that to? It's so ironic. He does sometimes say that to his disciples. He primarily says it to Pharisees, religious leaders. Think, think about, and it's so interesting because, well, let me say it. Nicodemus, you, you, you must be of God. He comes at night, right? You must be of God. I see the things you do. Jesus immediately answers Nicodemus in a way that Nicodemus isn't wanting to have the conversation Jesus wants to have. He wants to have an intellectual joust with Jesus. Jesus' response is, you have to be born again to enter into the kingdom, or to even perceive the kingdom. Nicodemus must have been like, okay, (laughs) why, why, what? How does that follow what I said? (laughs) Jesus immediately has him on his heels, just like the rich young ruler, right? Hey, good teacher, who's good but God? Immediately on his heels. Jesus is he's right through these things. Nicodemus, how can you be so dumb, right? And Nicodemus asks a really interesting question. How can this be? You must be born again. Should I, is it that we should crawl back into the wombs of our mothers? That would be uncomfortable and awkward for everyone. Um, Jesus says, how can you be so dull? Now, what does Mary say at the Annunciation? Doesn't she say almost verbatim that very thing? she is blessed right it's not the question it's the way that the question's asked and the disposition of it how can this be mary knows reproductive biology right <laughs> she's not asking for <coughs> a, a tutorial on reproductive biology there how can this be even so be it unto me according to thy word in christ is formed in her nicodemus how can this be how can you be so dull? Like, aren't you? A, aren't you a leader of the Jews? How could you be so dumb? Right. Jesus is doing that often. His issue <coughs> is one of a one of disposition, right? One of disposition and one of um, uh, hardness, as we saw in Paul. Right. Through through hardness of heart and callousness, we grow ignorant. It's not one of. I could never talk to you because you don't have the right training. Or, you know, you're just kind of modest by birth. No sin in it, but your IQ is only 70, so I guess we can't talk about the things of God. That's just for smart people, right? He's not saying that at all. It's not about that. It's about a disposition of unbelief by which the heart grows callous and and dull. So when we we have a working um, doctrine of the clarity of Scripture, what we want to get at is that Scripture is written in a way that it's able to be understood by those who betake themselves to Holy Scripture, seeking God's help with a willingness to hear and heed the Word of God, Holy Scripture. All right? Seeking God's help, w- being willing to hear and heed. Now, this is what we're not saying. Scripture is really easy to understand. Not saying that. That's not a that's not a part of a doctrine of perspicuity. Want to see a funny, cool text? Look at Peter's. Look at Peter's. Uh, the end of Second Peter. I think this is so humorous in many ways. Um, so it'd be Chapter Three, Second Peter, Verse Fourteen. Beloved, he says. Be diligent to be found by him without any spot or blemish and at peace, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks of them, in them of these matters. There are some things in them, Paul's letters, that are hard to understand. Who's saying this? Peter. Peter thinks Paul's hard to understand. A doctrine of perspicuity does not mean that scripture's always just, you know, written like, you know, on a third grade level or something like that. A bug, a bear, and a bee or whatever my kids used to read when they're learning to read, you know, not that. There are some things in them that are hard to understand which the ignorant and the unstable twist to their own destruction. So at least take, take, take care in this or take consolation in this. You see that all the time. It didn't start 20 years ago. <laughs> it's been going on for a long time. The twisting and the, and the distortion of scripture. They have done that as they do the other scriptures and that word there in the Greek is graphe. That's a technical theological word. It's wonderful. What, what Peter's saying is Paul's letters are holy scripture. Like read Paul like you'd read Moses or Isaiah. That's a, that's a mouthful, right? Mm-hmm. Paul's letters are gruff And Paul's letters are sometimes very hard to understand, says Peter. If for Peter, then for us, right? So, so a doctrine of clarity and perspicuity of Scripture doesn't mean that we don't have to sit and wrestle with Scripture, or that Scripture isn't hard hard on many levels, right? Not only cognitively, but hard sayings, right? Hard things that you have to wrestle with. Why do you think that God does that? Do you think that this is the intent of God? Do you think that um, God wants way more than just um, communicating truths, but to make a people of the truth. And that's a much bigger thing, right? <laughs> a much bigger thing to be a people of the truth. Boy, that takes crucifixion and resurrection. And that takes you know, long obedience in the same direction. And that takes hearing the word of God in, in, in your own wilderness in Gethsemane, right? Abide in the word, right? Go back to the word. Chew, like the psalmist says, masticate, um, turn the word around, enter into the word, right? Um, wrestle with the word, stay with the word long, right? And as you do that, right, light breaks. I think that's, that's a really important element of perspicuity, or cl- the clarity of Scripture. Not that Scripture is easy. Um, but that God gives, gives himself to be known in and through Scripture. Scripture has the same characteristics in that sense of our Lord. the mystery of the Word made flesh. Not easy to understand, but he's come as light, right? One's understanding of Scripture depends upon God's help. It's not an implicate of just natural stuff, right? It's not about high IQ and so on and so forth. Let me give a couple, a couple things you wanna think about as you, as you think about this. I've got several texts and some of them even we've looked at where Paul says, um, you know, I didn't come to you in, in a display of erudition. I came weak, trembling, so on and so forth. But I wanna look at a couple other things. Look at John 7, 17. I'll start in verse 14. That's more of a natural break. Chapter seven, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled saying, how is it this man has learning when he has never studied? Jesus answered them, my teachings, not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who who seeks the glory of him who sent me is true, and in him is no falsehood. Jesus' point there is, if you want to know if what I say is from my Father, the Word of God, listen, (laughs) heed it, enter in. Heed the Word of God, and in the heeding and hearing of the Word of God, you will know but if you will not hear and heed the word of God, you cannot know. Does that make sense? You cannot know. Because what's going on is there's a relational dynamic there. Does that make sense? There's a relational dynamic going on there. You can only know the word of God by faith and discipleship. Can't deconstruct and know the word of God. Moderns love that. Can't deconstruct. I want to make I want to make at least one more point and then talk for a couple minutes. Look at Hebrews five. We'll just see this. Everything to do with perspicuity. A certain start in verse eleven. We have much to say about these things, but it's hard to explain to you since you've become dull of hearing. Hear this, you've become dull of hearing. Something's happened. You guys have read Narnia, right? Now I've addressed you, in my address of you, you've become talking beasts. Make sure you keep hearing me or you will become dull. You'll learn, you'll stop talking, right? You'll become dumb in that sense, without voice. There's There's a warning here because something not good has happened. You become dull of hearing, for though by this time you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God, word of God. You need milk, not solid food. Now, babes nursing at the breast is about as beautiful as you can get, right? But not 20 year olds. That's an odd, weird, ugly thing, right? I mean, think of it like that. The writer of Hebrews is saying, this ain't pretty, man. (laughs) This is weird abnormal atypical and just it's startling and it's ugly it's true right don't do that you need milk not solid food for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since it's a child not childlike child ish again not cute it's wonderful to have like a second naivete like c.s lewis is, you know as I grew up and became mature, I started to read fairy tales again, right? I went, when I was a teenager, I was too cool for it. I grew past that, I got mature, and then I went back to these things. But you guys know, old infants are not cool, not good. 25 year olds that are childish, not good. Solid food is the mature, for the mature, for those who have had their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. How do we, how do we live into a doctrine of the perspicuity, the clarity of scripture? We hear the word of God in the context of tension and tumult, right? In this world, you will have trouble, but you have good cheer, right? I speak to you here. As you hear the word of God amidst good and evil, what do you get? You get practice, discipleship, discernment. By the way, discernment is one of the key ministries of the spirit, the spirit of discernment and you learn to discern good from evil, as you are in the sphere, (laughs) the only place you can rightly do ministry in this world, right, Um, with the armor of God on, um, being not only confronted with temptation, but being tempted by temptation, and you learn there by practice to discern and to hear the word of God. Scripture, and God makes himself clear to us in Holy Scripture by doing that. Can you guys think of anything worth anything that doesn't take practice? that be being an artist, being a musician. It would also include, by the way, learning how to ride a bike, say your ABCs, or if you're a little kid, hitting the pot when you go to the bathroom, not the floor. I mean it. Anything takes practice. Does, does hearing the word of God take practice? Practice. In the context of practice, maturity is had, right? A doctrine of perspicuity, the clarity of scripture says, God speaks and God doesn't wish to hide himself, but manifest himself. Give yourself to the Lord, learn to hear the, word, the Lord in the really hard places of life, right? Live, live by every word that comes forth from the mouth of God and the promise of God is that he gives you skill and discernment and you grow up into maturity. What do you guys want to say about that? We're out of time, I know, but we can steal a couple minutes maybe. Let me ask you this. Where is it hard to hear the Word of God in 2019? Do you guys find it particularly hard to hear the Word of God anywhere? Mm-hmm. so counter um, at least in my experience as far to what the world encourages. <laughs> for sure. You, you know, the text we just looked at, Peter said be patient, right? Be patient for these things, wait upon the Lord. You know, the root word of patience is pathos, mm-hmm. which is suffering. To, to wait is to suffer. Mm-hmm. Right? Now that's punctuated by some of our own, some of our own cultural predilections, which is that you shouldn't wait like, what should you wait for in our culture? Almost nothing, right? Um, and so that is a real countercultural thing, right? And that, too, is the context of when you wait, you listen, right? Of scripture, mm-hmm. one of those things. you grow you grow dull that way, yeah. right, or there's a dullness that can happen where you're not you know purposeful and, in, and intentional mm-hmm. slovenly right you're trying to <laughs> Mm-hmm. environment and, and I get this intuition that it's not quite right mm-hmm. but in that discursive environment it's hard to hold people accountable or to call people right. to to themselves yeah. because that's the type of discourse and if I can counter it with another intellectual uh, point yeah. then then I, that intuition just seems lesser sure so you gotta, gotta have the church and, and the academy um, for all the good of the academy can't suffice for the church, right? So some of you might be in a, in a context where the, the academy kind of seeks to the culture of that has taken the place of the church, mm-hmm. maybe. Or you think about that. But when that when that happens and theology doesn't isn't for the church, Kierkegaard used to say, say <coughs> um, he's speaking to you know. Enlightenment 19th century people. He says the best place to hide from the word of God is go to a major research um, university in Europe and get a PhD in biblical studies, right? You guys play hide and seek, right? You did, you still should, it's a great game. You know the best place to hide from people? Like say they're up against the tree, go on the other side of the tree. And just walk around the tree, right? In other words, you get real close. Make make sure you keep your distance. Lewis talks about this a lot. He says, you know, we're sometimes like mouse seeking cat, hoping never to find cat. If we find cat, we're gone, right? So you know what that looks like. If I can if I can learn, you know, historical backgrounds and grammar and and, and language and everything, then I can domesticate this book so that this book can never speak to me anymore, unless I let it, right? You want to be really careful of that. That's why study has to, it's, it's, got, it's got to have a big ecclesial context and, and so that you don't lose sight. Theological and biblical studies for the life and mission of the church. And it should be rigorous, right? And, and, it's, and, and it should have that ability, not always, but it should have the ability to do that. But that's not what it's for, right? It's for, it's for discipleship and training people up.